My name is Rita Catoni and today's show is The Cook and the Book Show. Um, The Cook and the Book Show is a fortnightly show where we do book reviews and we sometimes do a little bit of cooking or chatting around cooking. We don't do cooking on the show, sorry, we do chatting around cooking. Today we're mainly doing a book review and I would like to welcome my co-host, Eleanor Hogan. Hi, Rita. Thanks for that welcome. And if only we were cooking on the book show, though, what we would be cooking if we took Capricornia as a guide, I'm not too sure. Time for the old, I don't know, a bit of um, sea cucumber relish, maybe. Yes, possibly. Yes. Yes. I did do a bit of research on sea cucumbers and yeah, I wasn't convinced. It wasn't something I really want to explore a great deal. But it's, it's, it is a, you know, it is a delicacy in Asia. And I think Mm. there's a lot of, you know, fishing boats out there trying to collect those sea cucumbers cucumbers from the uh, from the ocean floor I believe. So Capricornia take two Eleanor. Yes uh, this is part two of our deep dive into Capricornia about a month ago Rita and I had a bit of a chat about Capricornia with Dave Richardson who is a local journal. Uh, Dave actually knew Xavier Herbert when Xavier Herbert came back to Alice Springs uh, to die as it were and Xavier Herbert saw the Territory and Alice Springs in particular as the place where the big issues were happening, the big social justice issues at that point in time, particularly the land rights movement. Now, Capricornia is a book which is set earlier than that period, set back in the 1920s, though it wasn't published until 1938. And it deals with some fairly difficult terrain to do with the fallout from the Aboriginal ordinance, uh, which was imposed on the Territory I can't quite remember the year. I think it was in 1819, sorry, 1918, and the policing of relationships between white settler men in particular and Aboriginal women and also people from diasporic minorities such as Chinese and Afghan and other people who were living in the territory at the time. And in many ways, Capricornia is a rollicking ride through that period. It touches on some fairly deep and difficult territory through the the main protagonist, Norman, who is a boy of mixed descent, born to a white public servant who goes to the territory by the name of Mark Shillingsworth and reputedly a Javanese princess, but in fact a First Nations woman. And his relationship with Toki, who is also a mixed descent woman, and the difficulties which they have. And although the book was in many ways quite radical for its time and arguably the most uh, progressive of these books by white settler authors such as Kate, Susanna Pritchard and Ernestine Hill and others who dealt with, dealt with those kind of issues, it's also very difficult and challenging and reflects the issues, not um, least of all, the language of its time. So Rita and I, we wanted to get an opinion, um, a perspective from a First Nations person who'd read the book and we ended up approaching Janine Lane. She's the Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Melbourne University at the moment and she's a Wiradjuri writer, teacher and academic
academic from southwest New South Wales. She's had a very long teaching career as a secondary teacher and later in tertiary institutions after completing a doctorate in Australian literature and Aboriginal representation and also a postdoctoral fellowship at the Australian Centre for Indigenous History at the Australian National University. So we spoke to her because one of the books which she wrote about in her thesis was Xavier Herbert's Capricornia. So we were interested to get a perspective from her about it. Unfortunately, Janine is away overseas at the moment, so we couldn't do that interview live today, but we will be playing a pre-recorded interview which we did a week or so back, a little bit later in the show. But before we move into that interview, we thought that we might just set up a bit of the background and flavour of the book by having a reading. So Rita's going to read a passage from the main character Norman's childhood, which sort of gives a bit of the context of the family situation and household situation that he's born into. Thus it happened that one quiet afternoon in the early part of the wet season of that eventful year, little Nornum, now aged six, while playing in Mark's house, taking advantage of Mark's absence in town and yellow duties in the native camp, heard the splash of the anchor and the rattle of a chain. For a moment he stood bewildered, then crept to the front door and peeped out, to be confronted with the sight of Mark and Chook and Jock landing from a dinghy. They had set out for the shore before the ship dropped anchor. Nornum ran to the back door, intending to flee, but flight was put out of the question by the sight of heavy-handed duty running home. For a moment he hesitated, gathering his little wits, then drew back, and after making a wild survey of his surroundings, rushed into hiding in the bedroom. Duty was rushing home to get her infant daughter, Diana, whom she had left asleep on Mark's white-sheeted bed. Diana was a black quadroon, her father being a black fellow. Mark forbade Duty to have the child in the house. Mark's house consisted of one large room with a kitchen built under the back veranda and connected with the room by a curtained doorway. The room itself was large and high. Two-thirds of it served as a living room, the rest screened off by canvas curtains prettily stenciled by the finicky hand of Mark as the bedroom. Nornum rushed into the bedroom so precipitately that he nearly crashed in the bed. He woke Diana. She was naked like himself, but chocolate-coloured, not copperish as he was. She did not see him. He darted under the bed. Is that enough? Mm. Yeah. yeah, the situation which ensues from that is that people sort of jock and so forth when they come in say oh is that your child and Mark kind of denies it and um, you notice also the language of the time that's being used there to describe First Nations people is quite dated too but it sort of I think gives also this idea of like the diversity of people too is something that comes through uh, in this book from time to time as well. I thought that I might just read another extract. So this is just a bit later in the book. And I suppose you can see really from the language, you know, as a contemporary reader, some of that language is um, a little bit sort of irksome and it's hard, but I I always find it when, I, you know, that's the second time I've read it, but um, you do sort of, I suppose, you know, forgive it um, because of the time it's been written in. 
Yeah, or see it within that context yes. um, as well. Yeah. So another section which I just thought I'd read was later in the book where Andy, um, who I think in some ways is a proxy for Xavier Herbert, who's another stockman, starts talking to Norman. So this is when Norman is considerably older. He's an adult. And I think this gives more of an idea of the feeling of where Xavier Herbert is trying to push against some of the public perceptions, some of the racist perceptions of Aboriginal people as being inferior. So I'll just read this section. It is a lot of talk, I should warn you, and not a lot of description here. Andy looked around again. The Aborigines have their arts, he went on, their music and storytelling and play-acting and astronomizing and such things which are no doubt as good as those of the ancient people we come of not so long ago and probably a dern sight better than what we could think of ourselves without assistance. We've assist, been assisted in acquiring, acquiring our culture by all the races of the earth, except the Aborigines, which has been hidden away from the rest of the world always. No telling what we could learn off them if we could get them to trust us with their knowledge. No telling what he would become if he'd had the luck to pick up with other races as much as we have. Is he any more primitive than an African Negro in the wild state? Sorry about this language. I don't think so. Again, he paused. He went on. There's no need to say any more. If you know anything about Aborigines in this natural state, you can't help but honour them unless you're a fool. But I must say, there's plenty of fools about. You've been listening to what those fools say, Sonny. You've been reading newspapers which, from start to finish, are only fit for the purpose we bushwhackers use them for when we've read them. Take my advice, Sonny. See for yourself and think for yourself. Learn all you can about your old people, then go back and tell the world about it. It's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. Norman was regarding him wide-eyed. I ain't kidding, said Andy, and it ain't nothing new. Plenty of people have discovered the worth of your old people, and plenty more will. Listen, Sonny, the day will come in your own time when your old people will be recognised as our old people too, as the fathers of the nation, and it'll be raised to a place, they'll be raised to a place of honour. No exaggeration, there's signs of it now. Twenty years ago, they were killing off the Aborigines round here like they were dingoes. The government didn't mind at all. But the government come down heavy on you if you did it now. It's a long while since anyone made war on them in the grand scale of the old days. I'm referring to private individuals, of course. The police are still pretty handy at shooting them up if they get the chance. Of course, you can't class a policeman as a normal citizen. It takes abnormal men to catch abnormal men, you know. But even the Johnops don't trust the Aborigines like they used to. Last big shoot-up of Aborigines by the John Ops was in 1928 on the West Coast. Last big one that was made public, I mean. No telling what they get up to on the sly, and it's likely to remain the last. There was a row about it. The people of the South wanted to know what for. Time will come when the John Ops go to jail for knocking Aborigines around. I'll bet me boots. The people of Australia are waking up to the fact that they've got a responsibility in the brother Aboriginal person. That'll lead them to getting to know him. And getting to know him would lead to getting to honour him, giving him the citizenship that it's to, be, that, that it's to the everlasting disgrace of the country he's been denied so long. And education, rights as a human being and the chance to learn this new system of society that's been dumped down in his country and so far done nothing but wipe him out. 
Yeah, that's a great section to read. And you do wonder if this is just an opportunity for, for Herbert to actually really put forward his, his opinion. And yes. you can see how forward-looking he is in mm-hmm. those respects because, I mean, a lot of those ideas are ideas that we, I think, associate much more with the land rights period, like following Goth Whitlam of, you know, in the 1970s and so forth. But, you know, already he's saying, you know, a time will come when, you know, First Nations people will be recognised as the parents of the nation. Yeah, it, did, it has taken a long time, though, since that book was written. Like, you read it and that was, you know, written in the mid-30s and you, you sort of go, you know, how yeah. long did the land yes. rights, you know, you're talking at least sort of 60 sort of years before that actually happened. So there, there is a sense of sadness, I think, when I read this because, you know, I think it, it did happen, but it, it well, you know, mm. it started mm. to happen, but it really did take a very long time. Yeah, to move from, you know, individuals and, um, you know, of course, some Aboriginal movements and organisations too and, mm. and non-Aboriginal music, you know, movements like the People's, um, what was it, the Aboriginal Friends Association, mm-hmm. making publicly advocating for these things but it's yeah. taken a long while for it to be recognised at a national level. Are we ready for that, for, to have a listen to the interview, do you think? Yes. 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 Let's go into the interview. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us about Capricornia and your perceptions and research of the book. I wondered if you could first of all introduce yourself to us and also tell a bit about your current research and writing interests and your previous research interest in Xavier Herbert. Yeah, look, Yuridu uh, Marang. Hello, Eleanor. Before I introduce myself, I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from Ngunnawal and Nambri country in Canberra, ACT. Normally I'm in Melbourne, but yeah, I do have family here in Canberra, so I'd like to acknowledge Ngunnawal and Nambri peoples and pay my respect to elders here for their continuing care of the land. My name's Janine, I'm Janine Lane, and um, I'm a Wiradjuri scholar and poet and teacher of writing and formerly literature. Currently, I'm working at the University of Melbourne and mainly living in Nam, Melbourne, and also acknowledging and paying respects to Wurundjeri peoples of the East Kulin nations there. Well, I mean, initially I was introduced to Xavier Herbert and several white authors at school as an English student who I liked English. I was good at... um, Books. There's a bit of a history there, but you know, one of my aunties liked books as well and stories. So developed a bit of a relationship with books. And as an English student in the 70s in um, tertiary English, I was introduced to some white authors and following on from that at university as well. As a First Nations student, as a Wiradjuri person and more broadly as an Aboriginal person, I, I don't know, I was disturbed by the white authors, settler authors, representations of Aboriginal people across place and time and we, I uh, did a PhD on settler representations of Aboriginal people and I was more interested, I'm a writer first and foremost, I like to think of myself as a writer and a poet and You know, my interest was in writing uh, cultures and representations. And so I looked at some white authors, settler authors like Catherine Pritchard, Xavier Herbert, um, Patrick White and David Malouf across the 20th century because 
they were very canonical. So, and of the four, Davia Herbert was the one who was extreme in a lot of ways. His, his portrayals, his representations are quite bleak, I think, yes. and brutal um, across two narratives. He wrote um, Capricornia in 1938 and, well, it was published in 1938 actually. He struggled to write it for quite a while. Then Poor Fellow in My Country, which was eventually published in 1975. So two narratives quite a long way apart, but equally quite brutal representations of Aboriginal people. But also Herbert was different from the other authors I mentioned, like Catherine Pritchard, Patrick White, in particular David Malouf, in that Herbert actually did know some Aboriginal people. And oh, before I go on any further to and talk about David Herbert or people who have written about him since that I may be deferring to quotes, I want to acknowledge a language warning here. I might be quoting author's terms that are dated and now considered inappropriate and offensive language, but, you know, sometimes it's necessary to quote people directly to get a sense of how they're representing. So I want to give a content warning there. But, yeah, on those authors, Herbert knew Aboriginal people as Geoffrey Dutton, who was later an Australian literary scholar, noted that Herbert grew up amidst what Dutton described as Dutton's writing in the 60s, 70s about Herbert's work because both his narratives as well, I should say, were quite critically acclaimed, especially Paul Fell in My Country won the Miles Franklin Prize in 1975, but also Capricornia won the sesquicentenary, which is the 150-year prize for Australian literature as well. So they're both quite highly awarded. And in these two narratives that are a long way apart, they are equally bleak, but he did stand out in terms of the fact, as Dutton said, Herbert grew up amidst what he called the raw material of Capricornia as a child and as an adolescent and Dutton writes, and this is uh, here's where a content warning comes in, um, quoting um, what Herbert wrote about himself, that he grew up with full-blood Aborigines, sick, and mixed-blood mixed blood fringe dwellers. And across all these authors that I looked about, looked at in my... PhD and, you know, in their representations, which left a major legacy. They're not just benign fictional representations because they were such authoritative authors. I did some of them at school or university. People studied them for years. Some of them may be less studied now, but still their representations have been quite canonical and have gone on. I mean, literatures inform literatures. So there's an intergenerational trajectory of settler representations that are informed by previous representations. And all these authors have this preoccupation, and Herbert in particular, with tropes of blood, you know, certainly there's a lot of blood on the frontier. But 
he's more concerned in both his narratives with this mixing of blood and the people he refers to as the Aboriginal people he refers to as fringe dwellers. People such as and, Norman and Toki. Uh, Norman in particular and I was struck by, and when I wrote about this, I was struck again by how many other settler readers said they just read over this bit and that they didn't read any symbolism in it, into it until I wrote it. But, you know, like our first impression, our reader, first impression of Norman when he is born is that he is, uh, so Norman is the son of a Yarrakambunga woman and uh, a white father whose name's Mark, and Mark is the brother of Oscar, who owns Red Ochre, which is a cattle station on Aboriginal land. And Capricornia is like a fictitious, broader name for the Northern Territory, and then there's a town called Capricornia, which is Darwin, or Zodiac. Port Zodiac is actually Darwin, and Southern Cross is meant to be Melbourne. But in this striking image that took me, even at the time when I was given this book to read as a university student in Australian literature in Capricornia, our first meeting of Norman with the Aboriginal mother and the white father is that Norman the baby was the colour, this is a direct quote, the colour of the cigarette stain on Mark's finger. And I've written here, this is a striking visual image of a mixed-race child mm. as a stain mm. on the white man's hand. And it's been quite an enduring one. And when I said that, a lot of people did admit, well, yeah, there's a lot of subliminal images at play here of mixed-race children, which Herbert is, on the one hand, concerned about, but his representations of such... And, you know, I mean, I'm a mixed-race person, so here's also where I feel this quite deeply and part of my interest in these narratives were not just as stories but for what they did. So, yeah, that's an enduring image of that mixed-race child, which people have said afterwards, wow, yeah, that was really enduring for them, but also subliminal. And all the characters that Herbert creates that are like Norman, described as fringe dwellers or mixed race or even blurs. And once again, content warning here are in the language of the time half cast. That's Norman, who, who you mentioned. There's also Toki in his later narrative, Frindy, as well. Herbert has two quite stereotypical representations of Aboriginal people in his narrative, and one is also here his a language warning for his terms is what he calls Herbert's terms the full blood savage, which to me is most vividly read through a character in Poor Fellow My Country called Bob Wirandirity, who is like, you know, a frightening witch doctor style, sorcerer style character. And Prindy is a mixed-race child in that same narrative, like Norman, who is also... Prindy perhaps is more shining than Norman in the fact that Prindy is seen to be a genius by a lot of people on the one hand, 
Stroll, on the other hand, he is equally like Norman or like Toki, according to Xavier Herbert's representations, flawed by the Aboriginal blood and is like a Norman, Prindy, Toki. For the reader, particularly for the settler reader who doesn't know any Aboriginal people and are being informed by these images of Aboriginal people, these representations, I've really only got two choices here, and that is people who are can't be accepted in either world, like Norman, who could be accepted by Aboriginal people. And there's a scene in Capricornia where Norman flees the farm to avoid some trouble and he goes bush for a while, but he is portrayed as being quite hopeless in the bush because he's illiterate mm. as an Aboriginal person. He can't read weather or signs like, you know, as according to Herbert, the full blood can. Yet when he meets an older Aboriginal elder man who tells him the story of the golden beetle, which is a story of place, I believe, belonging to that area, but I have to also say I'm not from that area. And the elder also tells Norman, you know, this is good country even now, and he talks about all the food that's available even now, meaning even at the cattle station. And he says to Norman, why don't you sit down with us? We're all the same. We're all blackfellas. Hey, Norman. But Norman, that's in, you know, a, a, quite another visit, but Norman can't accept Aboriginal people because he's been raised to think he was half white and that he wasn't Aboriginal at all. He only found out he was Aboriginal later because Norman's uncle, the white guy who raised him, told Norman he was the illegitimate child of a Javanese princess, which explained his complexion. And then he tells Norman as an adult that, you know, he's actually Aboriginal because other people noticed it. You've said that Xavier Herbert presents a very bleak view of, you know, the scenario for people of mixed descent during that Well, both really, because even the people like Bob, but particularly of mixed descent, which is most of us, that's kind of like these are the things that there's different ways, like cultural readings of canonical works are really important because there's one way white people, settler people can read this as bleak and doomed and they can also read it as inevitable. There's another way that culturally Aboriginal people specifically from Australia, but First Nations people more broadly can read this as a narrative that is more about settler fears of mixed race people or impurities or uh, so like while on the one hand Herbert claims to be not a eugenicist and he claims to care about Aboriginal people he in one of the many letters he wrote to people Herbert actually says in the letter not in the narrative but he says you know white fellas need to confront and fully understand or make reconciliation with what happened in the invasion of black Australia and he does use the word invasion mm. here which is radical so when was that, that when was that letter written was it from the 1930s or was it later i think this was quite late this letter was later like 60s late 60s you know in the because both his works had quite a long gestation period mm. 
of writing. And he was writing an initiation scene in Poor Fellow, My Country, which was it's just so problematic, brutal. That's where uh, the Bob Wurundiradirity character, who is like everything that you can imagine stereotypical about a, a witch doctor that is not even, a, you know, well, witch doctor is a terrible term, but that's how he is, exactly how he's portrayed. And, you know, that's a white person's term for you know, various elders or clever people or, you know, healers or, you know, it's such a a terrible term. Yeah, and derogatory. But then you're actually right, Herbert writes, you know, white people should come to terms with the history of the invasion of black Australia. Mm. And he talks about how he's going to show this through how an initiation scene is mucked up. But the initiation scene is so ill-informed and brutal but I'm not sure how, with that construction, anybody could be expected to embrace the people that he's constructing, who are not Aboriginal people, but as far as the readers are concerned, this is, you know, a construction of Aboriginal people. If that's all you've come across, you might give weight to it yeah. you know, ill-advisedly. So do you think that Xavier saw himself as something of a white saviour or a, a kind of an, an advocate or even a, a rebel? I I think, yeah, I think he definitely saw himself as, I don't know about saviour, but I think he definitely saw himself as a rebel. I think he definitely saw himself as a non-conformist and perhaps, I mean, it's been suggested, I'm not the only one to suggest this, and, and I'm not sure if it makes a difference to how I might, you know, read the representation. I think he thought he was prophetic as well. Mm. And this is something prophetic about this because, you know, I've been asked the question before when I've come out to speak about Herbert's works. Do I think either of these works, Capricornia or Poor Fellow, which is the one that actually got probably the slightest more attention, Poor Fellow, My Country, whether it's allegorical or prophetic or whether it's allegory or prophecy, either way, it's still very bleak. And I feel that even at a time when um, one of the people I cited in my thesis, the late Cliff Watergo, yes, who was a Murray scholar, and he said, you know, like during the time of, that this book was written, now, he wasn't talking about Poor Fellow in My Country, but during the 60s, which so the book, this book finally came to fruition, both his books had trouble finding a publisher as well. Initially, Capricornia was knocked back initially by Angus and Robinson because... It was too long and rambling, but potentially... Uh, no, it was too bleak as well. Bleak, they said it yeah. was bleak. But I thought there was an interesting point in that too, that of the authors, of, of the authors I mentioned, Pritchard, Pritchard White and Maloof, I really think... Herbert is critical of settlers as well. I think he's very critical, not as well, because they weren't particularly critical of settlers. Or Patrick White was a bit, but... Which is probably more about class for him, perhaps. It was very much about class, Patrick White, and he also sort of absolved himself. And I think that's the difference between these two authors too. There's a big class difference. You know, I read Patrick White's letters as well, compiled by David Marr, and... There was an interesting kind of curve of a relationship he had with Xavier Herbert as well. Initially, he was interested in 
his writing, because Patrick White was writing between the 30s and the 70s as well, although he actually wrote a lot more. But it's interesting that they were writing at the same time. But And, and David Herbert wasn't actually working class, but he liked to portray himself that way, but he certainly wasn't as middle class as the White family who oh, owned yeah, upper middle class. extensive properties and Patrick went to boarding school in England. But, you know, Xavier Herbert, he grew up in Melbourne initially. Um, he trained as a chemist. You know, he's not sort of particularly working class either, but he liked to really like to have that identity and pass himself off that way. And he was very much kind of, at, you know, at a certain level. I mean, some of the quotes that he wrote about how when he won the prize, for example, the Sesquitanary Prize in 1938 for Capricornia, he writes, and this is a quote, so once again, apologize for some of the offensive terms mm. in the uh, dated terms in this, but this is a direct quote that Xavier wrote. When the news came, that means that he won the prize, I was stunned for a moment, but only for a moment. I promptly bought a case of beer and called in all the bums, bagmen, Greeks, chows and yellow fellows about and got well and truly tanked with them. So, you know, there's a huge difference there between... His lifestyle and Patrick White's. Yeah. What of a better word. I'm just wondering, are there still any worthwhile reasons to read Capricornia these days? Yeah, there's worthwhile reasons. And, you know, a settler author, settler scholar called Michael Griffiths wrote a good book called Resettlement, which is a distribution of Australian settler literature, which was about... Going back, and I think this, I agree with this. I, you know, advocated for this in my PhD. It is worth reading some of these canonical novels now with many different cultural perspectives, not just a monocultural perspective. Like you could say that about lots of authors, like Kurtzian's work on Africa. Hmm. You know, it's lauded by white people, but it's problematic for the people mm. they re he represented as well. So it should be taught from all perspectives. So this work is worth reading, A, as the way people wrote in Australia about Aboriginal people, and, and B, you know, I refer to this work in my teaching. I don't necessarily set the whole book, but I set extracts. For people who are studying beyond a first degree, I still recommend readings of this whole, this and other works because, and of Her Herbert's two narratives, Capricornia is the most accessible one. Mm. Um, Poor Fellow in My Country is actually the mm. longest book ever published in English. Yeah. In Australia. Yeah, <laughs> longer than War and Peace, I think. And, um, you know, it was heavily sponsored by the Whitlam government for its publication as well. So, you know, it was obviously seen as, you know, a very important book because I think it was a, like a grassroots narrative that was going to speak to all people. I think it is worth reading and teaching um, and mentioning all these works and the reason why Michael Griffith's work is good is because he backtracks as I call it through settler representations of 
people of colour, Aboriginal people and people of colour, just to show where we are now and how we need mm. to mm. re-critique our, the way things are represented and have bigger conversations about representing people cross-culturally, whether it should be done, how it could be more respectfully done, if it should be done at all. So, yeah, I'm not sort of up for cancelling these works. It's just about the importance of teaching many cultural perspectives on a narrative. Mm. And reading them, I guess, within the, the context of their time too. And reading them within the context of their time and then also being able to, like, listen to different cultural perspectives on them, not just the white settler perspective or the more broadly Anglo-Celtic perspective, which is quite laudatory of some of these narratives because they don't, the people reading, making these critiques, don't have the cultural rigour themselves outside their own culture to offer different kinds of reading, different cultural perspectives of reading. Reading's not a universal practice, in other words. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Well, thanks for that, Janine. Thanks for sharing your insights on both of Xavier Herbert's books and his life and also on some reading approaches as well. Oh, no, thank you. That was a pleasure. And I think it is also important to now to think about these books in terms of books written by First Nations authors like Kim Scott, like Alexis Wright, Melissa Lukashenko, Tara June Winch. Yeah, it's really important to read things in the context of now and then and but also not just one is over because we have a different perspective on temporality that all times are important and no time is particularly resolved so all times are connected and mel so it's important to read these books that have informed the national psychic that we live in alongside more recent works that have changed the power dynamic in voice and representation. And you're listening to ACCC 102.1 FM Community Radio Alice Springs and Tennant Creek. That was Janine Lane. She is a Wiradjuri author and academic and she was talking to us about Xavier Herbert's writing, should it be cancelled and other issues, uh, particularly Capricornia and also Poor Fellow My Country. I'm Eleanor Hogan, if you've just joined in, and I'm here with Rita Catoni on Cook and Book. So, Rita... Um, what did you make of what Janine had to say? She, there was quite a lot in that interview and I don't know that we have time to cover it, but I think she raised some interesting issues around things like cancellation and yeah. language and, you know, the contemporaneity of time I found particularly interesting. Yeah, it was just really good listening to it again, I think. I think the first time when she actually did the interview with you, I was a little bit, I suppose, taken aback at um, how critical she was of the work and she didn't sort of really feel it had any redeeming qualities, although she obviously believes it should also not be cancelled as such, where Whereas for me, it was interesting that um, Herbert had sort of presented this perspective on Australia and, and Aboriginal people of mixed blood. And, and at the time, I thought that was really interesting. But it is 
equally interesting hearing it from a, an indigenous person's perspective and saying you know that is it was it was just such a, a bleak representation of the time yeah and another thing about the books uh, being written in the 1930s and having been set in the 1920s is that we forget that in the late 19th century and early 20th century there was a strong belief that aboriginal people were destined to die out which was mm. you know basically to support uh, you know, the imperial project of colonising Australia and that people of mixed descent were, in a sense, a social problem to be solved and so forth. And people like Xavier Herbert perhaps saw themselves as being um, a lone voice in the wilderness who could talk about the horror of this situation. But ultimately he does, in Capricornia at least, put quite a bleak closure on the situation. I, I don't know that I want to give a spoiler about what happens there, but there's no particular hope projected for people of mixed descent, as Janine is saying, in the actual closure that he gives to the book. Don't fully understand. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what you say, um, her discussion about time or her mention about temp temporality in the book? I think she was talking about temporality more generally in relationship to First Nations culture. And again, I don't think I really understand enough of um, Aboriginal culture to about, you know, the, the metaphysics of it. But I think it's sort of a bit like, uh, I'm reaching for a canonical reference um, T.S. Eliot has says in one of his poems about all time being present and I think instead of it being you know the whole sort of chronological beginning middle and end heading towards you know mm -hmm. a big ending like Judgment Day and Christian you know stories or whatever all time is perhaps uh, present from different cultures so therefore she's saying it's not inappropriate or unworthwhile to be reading a book from the past and thinking about the issues with it, which it has, which it may not have resolved, as well as reading um, First Nations books such as, you know, Tara June mm. Winch's Yield and Kim Scott's books, Dead Man Can Dance, um, Taboo and so forth. And, you know, of course, Carpenteria too. Uh, Carpenteria was perhaps by Alexis Wright. It was actually the book which sent us down this particular rabbit hole as we were thinking of talking to her about Carpenteria and its relationship with Capricornia. But instead, she's wanting to talk to us later in the year about her latest book, which will be great. But I, so, so I don't think, to, so just to backtrack to Capricornia, I don't think she's talking about time in relation to it within the book but in relation to all mm -hmm. narratives can perhaps be read regardless of the time that they're in yeah i mean i, I sort of felt a little bit guilty um of actually i quite enjoyed this book so i sort of i did i did worry about um, as, as a reader you know it does take you on a journey and it's it, as you said it's, it's a rollicking tale so I, I did sort of get a twinge of I suppose you know wonder of, of white guilt when I, I heard the interview about actually enjoying the book do you think it's okay to enjoy this book Eleanor yeah enjoyment's such an interesting thing isn't it because it's one thing to be intellectualizing <laughs> but it's another thing just to be having our own personal emotional responses yes. and what they actually say to us about ourselves yes. yeah look I guess 
Yeah, I mean, there's that discomforting edge. I think that mm. she's reminding us of. I mean, uh, there's there's a lot. If you like Dickens, you know, I think you'll love <laughs> Capricornia because it's full of these caricatures of people. But at the same time, you know, the constant rain of how people are described, like people like a fat Anna and you know the Chow and so forth. This kind of really hardcore language, which you know, people don't, well, people don't use so much, yeah, and, careful and, not to and, use And there's a lack of an apology in the, in the use of it either. Yes, it, it, yes. It's used very un, unapologetically. Yeah, yeah. So I think, yeah, it, it's worth taking heed of what she has to say mm-hmm. about um, thinking about why we're enjoying it. Um, yeah. yeah. And I suppose, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm you know, not as well read as you. So for me, I'm sort of I'm looking at it from a, like a reader perspective. I mean, it is very good, amazing to to see um, Janine's sort of perspective as an Indigenous academic. I found that so enlightening. Um, it raises quite a few questions for me as a reader as well. I'd like to talk about some of the passages. I talk about what I like. There, there are some sections in this book which I think are, are really quite funny and worthwhile sort of having a little chat about. Um, What's your favourite bit in this book or section or little story? Because there's so many, I suppose, little sort of stories within the story. It's it's a series of stories that are, you know, entwined, not not like Candy House, more there is still an overarching um, narrative here. I actually like that scene when Toki and Norman they team up with this Asian fellow whose name I've forgotten and he's cooking quite unselfconsciously this um, Asian meal and they're eating this Asian meal and I think it just gives you this picture of the other side of people of different backgrounds just getting along their life on with their lives without this um, intrusion that there is an intruder later into the narrative yeah. in the form of the arrival of Mark who everyone thinks has been dead because he shot through because he actually killed this Asian man in another terrible incident and he sort of arrives on the scene and everyone sort of says who are you and then they realise that he's actually Norman's father. Yeah, I mean, that is a lovely scene because it, it, it's, for me, it's like about the baggage of race. You know, mm. that's actually put aside and everyone's just enjoying this meal until, in fact, Mark turns up and, and, and upsets everything and the whole thing sort of goes pear-shaped after that. But it is a really lovely um, yeah, description of a Christmas lunch. Yeah, and what's yours? I think I know what you're going to say, so I was careful not to say that scene. <laughs> uh, mine would have to be the funeral scene. There's just this wonderful funeral scene where they're trying to bury a body or bury a coffin um, and it's raining so much in, in Darwin. It's in the middle of the monsoon that the... Um, you know that the the hole that the, the um, coffin is meant to go and keeps filling up with water and <laughs> kind of waiting for breaks in the rain so they can actually um, oh. bury the the body. Um, but then there's also this sort of like these um, sort of I suppose little snide remarks within it about them having to drill holes in the coffin for the for the blowflies yeah. as well. So it really gives you this incredible sort of sense of maybe what it was like to, to live in in Darwin or Zodiac. Which mm. is called in the book but it's um yeah look when I first read it I couldn't even remember who had died it was sort of like it's not sort of like sequential you get so distracted by the actual telling of the the tale yeah yeah 
but that would have to be my favourite scene in the book. I also like, um, you know, Tim O'Cannon's preparations for the marriage of his oh, daughter, yes. though. There's always a bit of tragedy with these things. And I think that's where, you know, Xavier Herbert is quite clever in talking about the dilemmas of settlers and so forth. Like it is quite a wry commentary on things. Like Tim's actually putting an ad in the paper to attract people to come to his daughter's wedding with free booze because, you know, she's a person of mixed descent and he doesn't think he's, you know, he's not no getting any takers otherwise no, yeah. and when they realise there's free grog. And I don't think that Xavier um, <laughs> Herbert is unconscious of, you know, the, the criticism of how people behave that goes on. I think he's actually quite a perceptive social yeah. commentator in, in that sense of yes. settler behaviour and mores. Yeah, and there is the sense that what he is really trying to depict is is his perception of a, of a reality there. Um, you know, whether it was or not is, is questionable. We're going to have to wrap up, aren't we? Yeah. So what's happening with you? Can I ask what you're cooking if you're not intending to make some <laughs> sea cucumber chutney no. or relish? Not that, that we could get it that easily down here in Alice Springs. No, it's, it's often dried, but I, I was in Lings today and I didn't seek it out. Um, no, I'm making a Persian <laughs> love cake. Oh, um, wow. For a, a friend's birthday tonight. And I'm going to try kimchi again. I've got a massive daikon radish. I had to throw out my last kimchi. It was a disaster. I seem to have some flaw when it comes to making kimchi. Maybe it's to do with the climate here. No, no, I've done it successfully here. It's to do with me. Okay. It's, it's, it's my, my <laughs> ineptitude as a fermentator. And in between that, I'm I'm really enjoying reading um, The Bone People at the moment. Ah, uh, yes. Although everybody says to me, have you got to that part? And it's a little bit like Xavier Herbert. You, you're just kind of waiting for the bad thing to happen, you know. I'm just yeah. sitting there. Everybody says, has it happened yet for you? And I'm like... No, it hasn't. Which bad thing? And you, you might find it anticlimactic because there's been so much build-up. Possibly, uh, it's sort of like you know the pivotal scene in the middle of the crying game. Yes, that's what yeah. everybody says, and I'm I'm like, no, I don't think I'm I'm there yet. Yeah. Um, what about you, Eleanor? What about me? I've just reading was. finished reading Travelling Light, which is a quite slim anthology of Robin Davidson's essays. Uh, you might remember her as the camel lady mm-hmm. from Tracks who um, went a huge distance. I can't remember how far, about 14 days walking uh, from Alice Springs to the coast with uh, some camels and dogs. And it, it's a series of her essays, you know, going memoir from her childhood in Queensland through to Alice Springs. So it's a bit disjointed in that regard. It's not a full memoir. But I have to say that really it's actually been the essays about Alice Springs which yes, have really leapt yeah. out. Yeah, and a lot of it is that I read tracks for a uni course, for a women's studies course, and I haven't actually read it since then. And now that I know the landscape and the communities and the people that she's talking about, you know, even someone like Saleh Mohammed, that meant nothing to me once upon a time, but now I know, you know, he's one of the um, local, you know, Afghan and inverted commas trader, you know, population with a certain profile and history and, you know, talking about going to places like Piplajara and so forth. I see it a lot more and I see her commentary a lot more. Again, quite dated perhaps in some ways, but really interesting, you know, for a period that that's, you know, perhaps... You know, starting to pass away from us too. That that 
you know, the end of the progressive land rights period and the people who were here from that time. And does she mention Salman Rushdie because he was also staying here in Alice Springs around the same time? Well, she had a relationship with him. Yeah. Yeah. No, she doesn't. Yes, I'm I'm, I'm so curious about, you know, particularly given that Salman Rushdie is currently (laughs) talking to people who were, you know, between Dave Richardson and then Xavier Herbert, you know, who were in Alice Springs during the 80s. It certainly sort of made me, you know, stop and think. Um, well, maybe there'll be the uh, release of the Salman, you know, the Salman Rushdie essay from, you know, Robin one day, perhaps. <laughs> the untold stories. <laughs> well, that's it for The Cook and the Book Show or The Book and the Cook Show. Next week will be Kitchen Radio and that will be with uh, Zoe and with Luke and we're going to be talking about wine next week. I know wine's not food, but I would argue that maybe it is food. Thank you so much Eleanor Hogan for, for today show yeah and it was great to um have janine on the show and um yeah to hear that first nations uh, perspective which was challenging in some ways yeah the song we're going out with is roll the chariot and it's by the 97th regimental string band and i've chosen this song because this is a song that um toki is singing when oh, yes, Norman, of course. Yeah, he finds her out <laughs> And you found it. I found it. <laughs> Thanks, Eleanor, and uh, tune in next week for The Cook 